Legal History of Wills Wills have a lengthy history. Ancient Greece The ancient Greek practice concerning wills was not the same in all places, some states permitted men to dispose of their estates, others wholly deprived them of that privilege. According to Plutarch, Solon is much commended for his law concerning wills, for before his time no man was allowed to make any, but all the wealth of deceased persons belonged to their families, but he permitted them to bestow it on whom they pleased, esteeming friendship a stronger tie than kindred, and affection than necessity, and thus put every man's estate in the disposal of the possessor, yet he allowed not all sorts of wills, but required the following conditions in all persons that made them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply that they must be citizens of Athens, not slaves or foreigners, for then their estates were confiscated for the public use. That they must be men who have arrived at twenty years of age, for women and men under that age were not permitted to dispose by will of more than one medim of barley. That they must not be adopted, for when adopted persons died without issue, the estates they received by adoption returned to the relations of the men who adopted them. That they should have no male children of their own, for then their estate belonged to these. If they had only daughters, the persons to whom the inheritance was bequeathed were obliged to marry them. Yet men were allowed to appoint heirs to succeed their children, in case these happened to die under twenty years of age. That they should be in their right minds, because testaments extorted through the frenzy of a disease or dotage of old age, were not in reality the wills of the persons that made them. That they should not be under imprisonment, or other constraint, their consent being then only forced, nor injustice to be reputedly voluntary that they should not be induced to it by the charms and insinuations of a wife. For, says Plutarch, the wise lawgiver with good reason thought that no difference was to be put between deceit and necessity, flattery and compulsion, since both are equally powerful to persuade a man from reason. Wills were usually signed before several witnesses, who put seals to them for confirmation, then placed them in the hands of trustees, who were obliged to see them performed. At Athens, some of the magistrates were very often present at the making of wills. Sometimes the archons were also present. Sometimes the testator declared his will before sufficient witnesses, without committing it to writing. Thus Callias, fearing to be cut off by a wicked conspiracy, is said to have made an open declaration of his will before the popular assembly at Athens. There were several copies of wills in Diogenes Laertius, as those of Aristotle, Lyco of Troas, and Theophrastus, Whence it appears they had a common form, beginning with a wish for life and health. Ancient Rome The development of Roman law furthered the modern understanding of wills and serves as the foundation to the inheritance law of many European countries, greatly aided later by canon law. The early Roman will differed from the modern will in important respects. It was effectual during the lifetime of the person who made it, it was made in public viva voce, all knew of the legator's intentions, the testator declaring his will in the presence of seven witnesses, and it could not be changed, these they called nuncupative wills, but the danger of trusting the will of the deceased to the memory of the living soon abolished these, and all wills were ordered to be in writing. The objective, as in adoption, was to secure the perpetuation of the family. This was done by securing the due vesting of the breed in a person who could be relied upon to keep up the family rights. 
There is much probability in the conjecture that a will was only allowed to be made when the testator had no known Gentile relatives, unless they had waived their rights. The Romans were wont to set aside wills, as being inefficiosa, deficient in natural duty, if they disinherited or totally passed by without assigning a true and sufficient reason, any of the children of the testator. But if the child had any legacy, though ever so small, it was proof that the testator had not lost his memory nor his reason, which otherwise the law presumed. Hence probably has arisen that groundless, vulgar error of the necessity of leaving the heir a shilling, or some other expressed legacy, in order to effectually disinherit him, whereas the modern law, though the heir, or next of kin, be totally omitted, admits no carilla inefficiosa, to set aside such will. It is certain from the text of Gaius that the earliest forms of will were those made in the Comitia Collata and those made in Procinctu, or on the eve of battle. The former were published before the Comitia, as representative of the patrician genies, and were originally a legislative act. These wills were the peculiar privilege of patricians. At a later time the form of plebeian will developed, and the law of testamentary succession was further modified by the influence of Tilepractor, especially in the direction of recognition of fidicomissa similar in some respects to testamentary trusts. Codicilli, or informal wills, also came into use and were sufficient for almost every purpose except for appointing an heir. In the time of Justinian a will founded partly on the Juchivile, partly on the Edict of the Praetor, partly on imperial constitutions and so-called testamentum tripartitum, was generally in use. The main points essential to its validity were that the testator should possess testamentary capacity, and that the will should be signed or acknowledged by the testator in the presence of seven witnesses, or published orally in open court. The witnesses must be idonai or free from legal disability. For instance, women and slaves were not good witnesses. The whole property of the testator could not be alienated. The rights of heirs and descendants were protected by enactments which secured to them a legal minimum, the Carilla inefficiosi testamenti being the remedy of those passed over. The age at which testamentary capacity began was 14 in the case of males, 12 in the case of females. Up to 439 AD a will must have been in Latin, after that date Greek was allowed. Certain persons, especially soldiers, were privileged from observing the ordinary forms. The liability of the heir to the debts of the testator varied during different periods. At first it was practically unlimited. The law was then gradually modified in favor of the heir, until in the time of Justinian the heir who duly made an inventory of the property of the deceased was liable only for the assets to which he had succeeded. This limitation of liability is generally termed by the civilians beneficium inventorii. Something like the English probate is to be found in the rules for breaking the seals of a will in presence of the praetor. Closely connected with the will was the donatio mortis causa, the rules of which have been as a whole adopted in England. An immense space in the corpus juris is occupied with testamentary law. The whole of part 5 of the digest deals with the subject, and so do a large number of constitutions in the code and novels. Influence of Christianity. In Christian tradition, Eusebius and others have related Noah's testament, made in writing and witnessed under his seal, by which he disposed of the whole world. Additionally, wills are spoken of in the Old Testament, in Genesis 48, where Jacob bequeaths to his son Joseph, a portion of his inheritance, double to that of his brethren. The effect of Christianity upon the will was very marked. For instance, the duty of bequeathing to the church was inculcated as early as Constantine, and heretics and monks were placed under a disability to make a will or take gifts left by will. A will was often deposited in a church. 
the canon law follows the Roman law with a still greater leaning to the advantage of the church. No church property could be bequeathed. Manifest usurers were added to the list of those under disability. For the validity of a will it was generally necessary that it should be made in the presence of a priest and two witnesses, unless where it was made in pious causes. The witnesses, as in Roman law, must be done. Gifts to the church were not subject to the deductions in favor of the heir and the children necessary in ordinary cases. In England, the church succeeded in holding in its own hands for centuries jurisdiction in testamentary matters. This is practically in accordance with the definition of modest in us. In the Leges Barbarorum, where they are unaffected by Roman law, the will, if it existed at all, was of a very rudimentary character. The will is, on the other hand, recognized by rabbinical and Islamic law. Roman influence on English law. The Roman law of wills has had considerable effect upon English law. In the words of Sir Henry Maine, the English law of testamentary succession to personality has become a modified English form of the dispensation under which the inheritances of law. Roman citizens were administered. At the same time there are some broad and striking differences which should be borne in mind. The following among others, as of 1911, may be noticed. A Roman testator could not, unless a soldier, die partly testate and partly intestate. The will must stand or fall as a whole. This is not the case in England. There is no one in English law to whom the universitas furies of the testator descends as it did to the Roman heirs, whose appointment was essential to the validity of a formal will, and who partook of the nature of the English heir, executor, administrator, devisee and legatee. The disabilities of testators differed in the two systems. The disability of a slave or a heretic is peculiar to Roman law, of a youth between 14 and 21 to English law. The whole property may be disposed of in England, but it was not so in Rome, where, except by the wills of soldiers, children could not be disinherited unless for specified acts of misconduct. During the greater part of the period of Roman law the heir must also have had his fall kitty and forth in order to induce him to accept the inheritance. In English law all wills must conform to certain statutory requirements, the Romans recognized from the time of Augustus an informal will called codicillae. The English codicil has little in common with this but the name. It is not an informal will, but in addition to a will, read is a part of it, and needing the same formalities of execution. The Roman testatum applied to both movables and immovables, in England a legacy or bequest is a gift of personality only, a gift of real estate being called a device. The Roman will speak from the time of making, the English speaks from the time of death. This difference becomes very important in case of alteration in the position of the testator between the making of the will and his death. As a rule the Roman will could not, the English can, pass after acquired property. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, 6-1 since that matters, and, what do I even say other than, hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Development of the Law of Wills in England Liberty of alienation by will is found at an early period in England. To judge from the words of a law of Canute, intestacy appears to have been the exception at that time. How far the liberty extended is uncertain. It is the opinion of some authorities that complete disposition of land and goods was allowed, of others that limited rights of wife and children were recognized. However this may be, after the conquest a distinction, 
the result of feudalism, arose between real and personal property. It will be convenient to treat the history of the two kinds of will separately. Land. It became the law after the conquest, according to Sir Edward Coke, that an estate greater than for a term of years could not be disposed of by will, unless in Kent, where the custom of Gavilkin prevailed, and in some manors and boroughs, especially the city of London, where the pre-conquest law was preserved by special indulgence. The reason why devise of land was not acknowledged by law was, no doubt, partly to discourage deathbed gifts in Mortmain, a view supported by Glanville, partly because the testator could not give the devisee that size and which was the principal element in a feudal conveyance. By means of the doctrine de uses, however, the devise of land was secured by a circuitous method, generally by conveyance de fiafis to uses in the lifetime of the feffer to such uses as he should appoint by his will. Up to comparatively recent times a will of land still bore traces of its origin in the conveyance to uses in ter vivos. On the passing of the statute of uses lands again became non-divisible, with a saving in the statute for the validity of wills made before May 1, 1536. The inconvenience of this state of things soon began to be felt, and was probably aggravated by the large amount of land thrown into the market after the dissolution of the monasteries. As a remedy an act was passed in 1540, which came to be known as the Statute of Wills, and a further explanatory act in 1542-1543. The effect of these acts was to make lands held in fee simple divisible by will in writing, to the extent of two-thirds where the tenure was by night service, and the whole where it was in saccage. Corporations were incapacitated to receive, and married women, infants, idiots and lunatics to devise. An act of 1660, by abolishing tenure by night service, made all lands divisible, in the same vein the statute of frauds, 1677, dealt with the formalities of execution. Up to this time simple notes, even in the handwriting of another person, constituted a sufficient will, if published by the testator as such. The statute of frauds required, inter alia, that all devices should be in writing, signed by the testator or by some person for him in his presence and by his direction, and should also be subscribed by three or four credible witnesses. The strict interpretation by the courts of the credibility of witnesses led to the passing of an act in 1751-1752, making interested witnesses sufficient for the due execution of the will, but declaring gifts to them void. The will of a man was revoked by marriage and the birth of a child, of a woman by marriage only. A will was also revoked by an alteration in circumstances, and even by a void conveyance in ter vivos of land devised by the will made subsequently to the date of the will, which was presumed to be an attempt by the grantor to give legal effect to a change of intention. As in Roman law, a will spoke from the time of the making, so that it could not avail to pass after acquired property without republication, which was equivalent to making a new will. Copyholds were not divisible before 1815, but were usually surrendered to the use of the will of the copyhold tenant, an act of 1815 made them divisible simply. Devises of lands have gradually been made liable to the claims of creditors by a series of statutes beginning with the year 1691. Personal Property The history of wills of personality was considerably different, but to some extent followed parallel lines. In both cases partial preceded complete power of disposition. The general opinion of the best authorities is that by the common law of England a man could only dispose of his whole personal property if he left no wife or children, if he left either wife or children he could only dispose of one half, and one third if he left both wife and children. The shares of wife and children were called their pars rationabilis. 
This pars rationibilis is expressly recognized in Magna Carta and was sued for by the Ripta Rationabili party. At what period the right of disposition of the whole personality superseded the old law is uncertain. That it did so is certain, and the places where the old rules still existed, the province of York, Wales and the city of London, were regarded as exceptions. The right of bequest in these places was not assimilated to the general law until comparatively recent times by acts passed between 1693 and 1726. A will of personality could be made by a male at 14, by a female at 12. The formalities in the case of wills of personality were not as numerous as in the case of wills of land. Up to 1838 an uncupative or oral will was sufficient, subject, where the gift was of 30 pounds or more, to the restrictions contained in the statute of frauds. The witnesses to a written will need not be credible, and it was specially enacted by an act of 1705 that anyone who could give evidence in a court of law was a good witness to a will of personality. A will entirely in the testator's handwriting, called a holographic will, was valid without signature. At one time the executor was entitled to the residue in default of a residuary legatee, but the Executor's Act 1830 made him in such an event trustee for the next of kin. Jurisdiction over wills of personality was until 1858 in the ecclesiastical courts, probate being granted by the diocesan court if the goods of the deceased lay in the same diocese, in the provincial court of Canterbury, the prerogative court, or York, the chancery court, if the deceased had bona notabilia, that is, goods to the value of five pounds in two dioceses. The ecclesiastical jurisdiction was of a very ancient origin. It was fully established under Henry II, as it is mentioned by Glanville. In the city of London wills were enrolled in the court of hustings from 1258 to 1688 after having been proved before the ordinary. Contested cases before 1858 were tried in the provincial court with an appeal originally to the court of delegates, later to the judicial committee of the Privy Council. There were also a few special local jurisdictions, courts baron, the university courts, and others, probably for the most part survivals of the pre-conquest period, when wills seem to have been published in the county court. The ecclesiastical courts had no jurisdiction over wills of land, and the common law courts were careful to keep the ecclesiastical courts within their limits by means of prohibition. No probate of a will of land was necessary, and title to real estate by will might be made by production of the will as a document of title. The liability of the executor and legatee for the debts of the testator has been gradually established by legislation. In general it is limited to the amount of the succession. Personal liability of the executor beyond this can by the statute of frauds only be established by contract in writing.